So I really I started last week about preaching around the message of the local church, and that the reason for doing that this is that you'd continue to be captivated by this beautiful, amazing, ravishingly complicated thing called the church, and that your heart would continue to be. Uh, warm towards the local church. And uh, the reason I'm saying that, that is because so much of our world is, is cynical of the church. And there's so many things that have happened over many, many generations where pastors fall and there's church scandal and there's all this kind of things that just regularly come against God's church. In addition to that, we have a Western culture that is incredibly cynical of faith. And all these things undermine the love of the local church. And I want to just try and do my best to help you to love the local church again, to be passionate about the beautiful bride that is Jesus' church, that He loves, that He birthed. Remember at the end of the Gospels in John, I think it is, or Matthew, He breathes on His, on his disciples and He says, receive my spirit, and that is when the local church is born. And then in the upper room in Acts chapter 2, they're all together fasting and praying, and the Holy Spirit comes, boom and empowers them in a whole new way to be witnesses for the kingdom and for the gospel, right? And the church is incredibly beautiful. The church is incredibly wonderful, and I want your hearts to be captivated again with the beauty of the local church, and uh, that you would love the local church, that you would treasure the local church, that you would honor the local church. As imperfect as the local church is, we're going to look at that this morning. And I encouraged you to, uh, towards the end of my message last week, there are five, five ways we practically love the local church. We love the church with our hearts. And it really is a thing of affection. It really is a primary thing of affection towards God's people. And remember I said, when I'm talking about the church, it's not, it's not the cathedral. It's not the institution. It is the people, these people that make up this local church, that the affection of our hearts is towards each other. As God so loved His church... And birthed his church and gave him, Jesus gave himself up for his church. That same love that God has for his people, he asks us to adopt that as we love each other. Amen? That's the first thing we do. We love with our hearts. Secondly, I said to you, we love with our minds. minds. How do we think about the church? And I said, often our thought life betrays our hearts, and our hearts betray our thought life, don't they? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I said to you, one of the ways to kind of measure that in your own life is when you've had something negative happen in a local church, what is your response? How do you think? What do you feel? What is your reaction? And that, that often helps you as a barometer to see how perhaps your attitude towards the local church needs to change, whether you've been offended by something and how you've responded to that and how that looks like for you in your heart and that you respond appropriately to change so that you, God can change your love for these people, this is the wonderful bride. And I remember I said last week I wanted to talk about our local church, and I'm going to talk a little bit more today about the church broader than that. And then I said we love God with our time in a very practical way. How does the local church and your calendar interact? And I remember I said not, I'm not speaking so much about events and getting busy. All those, those things are important in the church. I said how does your calendar and the local church interact? So, for example, just texting someone to say you love them, or inviting someone around for a meal, or going to coffee with someone, or meeting the guys in the pub on a Tuesday night just to be with each other and love each other and say, hey, it's great to see you. That's what I'm talking about. 
in terms of our time. How does our time interact with the community that God has planted us in? Amen? Fourthly, I said we love our God, uh, love the church with our hands. Practically, in terms of our gifts, how do those uh, are being released into the local church? And lastly, I said with our mouths, how we speak about each other, how we love each other, and we love the church of God with our mouths, that we speak well of the local church. Amen. So if you didn't, weren't here last week, um, please catch up online or on podcasts. And so what I'd like to speak about today is how we understand the message of the local church, because that is so important. The message of the local church. What do we, what do we preach? What do we believe? And so I want to simply say, I've called this message this morning, the message of the local church is the kingdom of God. Amen? The message of the local church is the kingdom of God. And I'd like to try and un unpack that word kingdom and help us to understand how we can think about that in terms of what we say we believe. And so the message of the kingdom, of the gospel of the good news of Jesus, the message of the kingdom is such good news. It contains the answer to all of our longings, all of the problems of the world. And I want to put it to you this morning that the longings of our heart and the human need is not primarily about more prosperity or a good family life or discipling each other and encouraging each other or discipling the nations even. All those, those are all good and necessary things. The heart of our message is not evangelism, it's not prosperity, it's not church planting, it's not prayer, it's not tithing, it's not anything like that, although all of those things are good things and they are necessary things and we give all of our hearts towards those things in the local church. What we are called to preach, what we are called to live out as God's disciples is that there is a king called Jesus and he has a kingdom that has come to earth, and that transforms the way that we live. We are called to preach the good news of the message of the kingdom of God. Amen? And the kingdom has come. And all these other things that I've mentioned are good and necessary, and they're integral to this kingdom coming, and they're parts of the kingdom, and it's what Jesus has inaugurated here on earth that we now continue to live in. All right? And if you've been part of the church for a while, you're going to, I've said these things in other Context, and you might have heard these things before, but I encourage you this morning, let them refresh your heart again. Ultimately, it's Jesus. He's our Savior, and He's also our Lord, and it's Him whom we love and whom we serve. And the question that all of us has, have to answer for ourselves, whether we are students, young, old, middle-aged, whatever we are, will I submit to this King Jesus in my life? We like Savior Jesus, don't we? We've just celebrated Christmas uh, the, the nativity, and we love the baby, and we love the manger, and we love the warm and cuddly, and we love peace come to earth, and we love God with us. But there is also a king, and his name is Jesus, and he says, my life is under, uh, your life is under my control, and will you submit yourself to me, the king? It's a different thing. We love Jesus' Savior. Jesus also is Lord. He is Lord of everyone who lives by faith, who's given their heart to Him, and He wants to rule and reign in your life and bring His kingdom in you, so that through you, His kingdom can come to others. Amen. And so, the point that I want to bring to you this morning is that there's many ways, many scriptures that speak about the kingdom that make it plain that for Jesus, it was an integral part of his life and his ministry. So I'm just going to give you four this morning. Matthew, uh, there's some in Matthew, Luke, and 
book of Acts. So here's the first, Matthew 3:17. It says of John the Baptist, in those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come. This is he, pointing to Jesus, who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. And then we read later in Matthew, immediately after John is thrown into prison in Matthew 4, 17, it says this, from that time Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then in Matthew 6, when Jesus is teaching his disciples about not worrying about anything, it's good, good to hear the teaching of Jesus in 2024. So much to worry about, right? So much to be anxious about. And what did Jesus say to his disciples? He says, uh, seek first the kingdom and its righteousness and all these things that you worry about. All these things will be added to you. Hey, don't worry. Be happy someone else said. And we can genuinely do that, not in a flippant way, but in a way that we're trusting our future to the great King because His hand is upon us. And He's promised there to give us all that we need for life and ministry if we honor Him. That means money, finances, friends, family, community. As we see, serve Him, He will add all those things to us. What a joyful thing. It just releases the pressure. Don't have to be anxious. Am I, I'm, am I saying that from the perfect place? No. Do I get anxious? Yes, I do. But I'm learning to trust Him. Amen? And we can all learn that together. And then he says, even verse 34, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And lastly, Matthew 9, verse 35, when Jesus is trying to encourage His disciples to live outwardly and think about other people, He says this, Jesus went, through all, um, Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Isn't that true? People are harassed. They're helpless. Don't know what to do. And then what does he say? He says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. And so there's the sense of the answer to the problem is the church, the, the people of God going out with the good news that's transformed their lives to sow that into the lives of their friends and their family and the community. Amen. So here yeah, there are many other examples. And we see that after Jesus ascended into heaven, his, his, his disciples did exactly that. They went out and they preached the kingdom. So for the rest of the time this morning, I want to focus on this thought, this concept of the kingdom and what it means. And I'm drawing largely on what I say uh, in the, today on a lecture that I heard in America by a guy called Scott McKnight, wonderful teacher, thinking about what the kingdom means, thinking about how we can understand this thing of the kingdom. Because I, want to, I think it's really important to define because there are some in the church, and I'm not talking about this local church, I'm talking about the extended church, that can use the word kingdom in a way that undermines and diminishes the importance of the local church. And I think that's incredibly sad, and that's what I'm trying to put right this morning. The word can, kingdom can be used in a flabby way, an undefined way, by many in the greater church community. And um, people, the problem is that when people say kingdom, they don't all mean the same thing when they use the word, uh, the word kingdom. And definitions really, really are important 
so that we understand what we are saying when we use a word. George Byron said this, Words are things, and a small drop of ink falling like dew upon a thought produces that which makes thousands, perhaps millions, think. It's really, really important how we understand words and what they mean and how we define them and how we verbalize them and use them, especially in the church. So I want to give you four things that I think in the greater church people use the word kingdom to mean. And I'm not quite sure that they just mean these things. And then we're going to land on something that I think the church should use when it defines the word kingdom. When we talk of the word kingdom, some people use it as an ethical word. In other words, when we think about creation, green issues, issues of justice, issues of mercy, then we are doing the work of the kingdom. Have you heard that kind of language before? The work of the kingdom. So I, I call the skinny jeans the theology. It's normally preached by guys in skinny jeans with beards who like coffee. It's all about the planet. It's all about the kingdom coming in the, in the world and saving the whales. And these are all good things. These are great things. And they say, this, this is, when we do this, the kingdom comes to earth. What is, you, you've heard that. Okay? And so the good, uh, important question to ask is, if you think like that, is, is this. So, someone like Gandhi, for example, who was a great, great moral teacher, did he do kingdom work then? Was he bringing the kingdom? And some people would say that he did. However, if you say that he did, that raises another question for me. Do you have to be a follower of Jesus to be kingdom work, to do kingdom work? Do you have to be a follower of Jesus to do kingdom work? If you say no, you don't have to believe in Jesus to do the work of the kingdom, then what about the message of the gospel? Where does that fit in? You see, when we, get, get, we start to think like that, we diminish the importance of the gospel message and we diminish the power of the local church. So I want to put it to you that it's not just about ethical thinking. The kingdom is much, much more than that. And if everyone involved in green, green issues and social justice is doing the work of the kingdom, why on earth do we need the gospel and why on earth would we need the local church? Let's just go and all join Greenpeace and bring the kingdom. Second, there's a way that others define kingdom is that it has to do with gifts of power. Now, charismatics love this. Okay, and we are charismatics in this church. And the kind of thinking goes like this. When we experience the presence of God, when we see signs and wonders, then the kingdom has come. Aha. If we see signs and wonders and we see, feel the presence of God when we worship, oh, the kingdom has come then. The kingdom is with us. And uh, that's true. Gifts of healing and supernatural power are wonderful ways that we experience the kingdom, and it's vital to us to know that so that we can show that the kingdom has come, but we can't reduce the kingdom of God only to signs and wonders and spiritual gifts. The kingdom of God is much, much more than signs and wonders and spiritual gifts, as important as those are. There are, thirdly, some people that say the kingdom is the church. So, for example, this is very much the way that Roman Catholicism has always thought, or the Eastern Orthodox Church, the kingdom is the church. And over the centuries, that's why there's so much abuse has come through the church, because political power and church have become integrated. And what did the Reformation teach us? The Reformation taught us that we must separate out the power of political parties from the church. It's never a good thing when politics and church are integrated in one. 
That's what history teaches us. And ever since the Reformation, Protestants have said it's particularly important that actually political power separated from church power or church structure because how can the church speak into politics if it's, if it's actually just integral to politics? Yes? And so we can't, we can't just say, well, the church uh, is the kingdom because it's not that. And then fourthly, there are some that say the kingdom is connected with the idea of what is still to come, this utopia, this perfection of the future. And uh, so, for example, in John or Revelation, when people speak about the end, it's like things are really bad on earth here, but there's a time coming where there will be no more pain, there'll be healing, there'll be absolute restoration, and that's the perfection that is to come. That is the kingdom that is still to come. And I believe that absolutely. I love the teaching about the end of all things when God will make all things new and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. But the kingdom is more than just the future utopia that is to come. And so here I want to remind you that the Bible explicitly says, Jesus says, the kingdom is now. It is here. It has come. It's not just in the future. It is here. It's amongst us. Can you see it? It's very near. It's right here. And so we have to recognize that as well. So having considered those four things, how then do we come up with a biblical understanding of what the kingdom of God is? And I've, as I've said, let's work really hard at defining the words that we use and understanding them. And my basic uh, thesis this morning is that there's an underlying problem for me in, the, in the, the broader church that many, for many, the kingdom has become what is good and the church has become what is less, even bad. The kingdom is good, and the church is somehow less than that, and uh, they are compared to each other. The kingdom and the church is compared to each other way, in, in a way that the local church is always the loser, and the local church is always diminished. Let me put it to you in a, uh, more detail. Language like this, the kingdom cannot be put into a box. Especially the kingdom cannot be put into a church box. And if we put the kingdom into a church box, then we create church people, not kingdom people. Or, language like this, what happens outside of the church walls is the kingdom. What happens inside of the church is church. And it seems to me that the kingdom and the church are pitted against each other in a way that Jesus never, ever intended and never taught. And I ask you kindly, why would any Christian want to pit the church against the kingdom and the kingdom against the church? Why would we want to do that? Jesus said his kingdom had come, was coming, was very near. And at the same time, he asked us to pray for that kingdom. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. We're called to pray for that. Your kingdom come. And Jesus also said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he breathed on people and said, you are my church. And he said, love each other as my church. And he encouraged us to go into the world as his church. Why on earth would we put the kingdom against the church when Jesus doesn't do that? He loves both. And he says the kingdom is here and it's through the church that the kingdom is made manifest in a way that people can see that the kingdom has come. Amen? And so, the obvious for me and most insidious enemies of the of healthy church family right now in our culture are recreation and leisure. 
And it's hard enough to stand against those things in the culture without the church undermining itself by this kind of thinking. And that's why I say, I agree with those that have said this before, the local church is the hope of the world. I genuinely believe that. That's how we're going to transform the world is through the local church. And it's also that the, the local church is what Jesus loves with all of his heart and that he's put his hope in the local church. He's put his hope in us to get the job done, to preach the good news, to see the kingdom come so that he can come back again. For, yes, an imperfect, blemished church now, but in the, then a perfect, unblemished, spotless bride that he is perfecting. Amen? And so I'm trying to do my best this morning to encourage, if we don't really understand this, we have not fully understood the kingdom, and we've not fully understood the church. Jesus came to birth his church, build his church, sanctify his church, present his church to himself, spotless, on that final day. And maybe you say, oh, and, you know, I, I get that, but it's still so small and insignificant and imperfect and messy, the local church. I want to deal with the noble things, the great, great themes of plan, changing the planet and solving problems. And my business needs to count for more than, than just the local little, this little church. And I put it to you, yes, absolutely. I put it to you, that's exactly the point. The church is about messy, imperfect people gathering together so that they can be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit and healed and regenerated so they can get on with the big thing of saving the planet and letting the kingdom come and God doing something amazing through their lives. That's exactly the point. <laughs> and so that's why Paul, in his letters, is so strong about the grace of God. Throughout his, his ministry, he's continually encouraging us to look to the grace of God for our own lives because he knew that gathering people from all over the world into one community and getting them to love each other and get on with each other is a messy business and you can't do it without the grace of God transforming you. And we all come from imperfect cultures. We all come from imperfect families. And yet God calls us all together, and he says, you, I'm putting my spirit upon you in this local community. And there are other beautiful expressions of church in this community, like St. Alden's Vineyard and St. Paul's up the road and City Church down the road. God has put his hands on all of those groups of people, the power of his spirit upon them. And he said, get on, I want you to transform the world through your life, your community transformed through your life by the power of the spirit coming in you, through you, transforming your heart so you see yourself differently and see others differently and you get on so that the kingdom can come. How noble is that? <laughs> I mean, what more can we ask for, for, for the vision of our lives to help transform the world, to make it a better place for Jesus and his kingdom? Amen. Am I too loud, guys? Okay, good. So let me just kind of try and draw this to some kind of conclusion. What did Jesus mean then when he said, repent for the kingdom of God is, hand, is at hand? And remember, we're trying to think about a biblical definition. Um, and I want to say, if we're going to really understand what Jesus meant as a first century Jew about what he intended when he said the word kingdom, we have to do our best to try and think what a first century Jew would have meant. And Jesus quoted the Old Testament all the time. He quoted the prophets, and he quoted uh, the Pentateuch all the time. And so when he said kingdom, he meant something specific. And I'm convinced that what Jesus meant by the kingdom, most people now, when they use the word kingdom, it can't possibly mean what most people say it does. 
And I've given you four examples of what people say it might mean. There are over 200 passages in the Old Testament that use the word kingdom. 199 of them use, I'm going to define the way that those 199 passages use this word. The only exception is this scripture, Psalm 103 verse 17, which says this, The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness to their children's children, to those who keep His covenant and remember to do all His commands. The Lord has established His throne in heaven and His kingdom rules over all. So there there's the sense of the kingdom above all things, ruling over things. But in the other 199 times that it's used in the Old Testament, it means this. It means simply, when the word kingdom is used in the Old Testament, it means a people who are governed by a king. That's what it means over and over and over again. And if you, wherever you read that word kingdom, if you think, just simply think a kingdom means a people governed by a king, you're not going to go wrong in how you view with your view, right? A kingdom governed by a king. And there are four constants in the the use of the word kingdom. First of all, the kingdom that we are speaking about has God as its king. Amen? Not not Donald Trump, not Mr. Sunak, not, not that kind of kingdom. No, the kingdom we are speaking about has God as its king. And when we see this in, in the story of Samuel, for example, when the people reject God as their king and say, no, we want a king like every other nation has. And so that's the story of Israel, isn't it? In the Old Testament, one king after the other, because they've said, no, God, we don't want you as a king. There's a, they had a theocracy, and they say, no, we don't want a theocracy anymore. We want a monarchy. We want a king like everyone else has in, in, in the nations. And the unfortunate story of the history of Israel, as in the Old Testament, after David, the kings get progressively worse, don't they? That's what the story of Judges is about, the book of Judges. One king after another, rising, falling, rising, falling, and they are not kings like God was to them. And then in the New Testament... We see this. We see there's a Christocracy that happens. There is a king that is inaugurated, and his name is Jesus. And he rules in perfection, and he rules in power, and he's integral to God's kingdom. And so when Jesus said that the kingdom of God had come, the Israelites rejoiced because they thought, oh, we're going to get a monarchy again. The Romans are going to be overthrown. We're going to have a king again like David. And they didn't understand that Jesus was saying, no, 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 I'm ignorating a new reign. It's in me. It's about my kingdom. This is a kingdom that doesn't look like the monarchies that you've had before. I'm the king. I'm going to do something completely different in my kingdom. And so he inaugurates his own rule. And so second, I want to say this kingdom has God as its its king, but this kingdom has a king who rules. (laughs) He has authority. He has power in this kingdom. And in, 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 in our understanding, the king rules in two ways. By governing, yes, by saying this is how things should be ordered. But also by saving and redeeming and ransoming us back from what enslaved us. Yes? And that's what Jesus does for us. So the Old, old Testament idea is the, the Israelites leaving the, 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 the um, Egypt as slaves and coming into the promised land and led, being led by Moses. Yeah? That's the Old Testament picture of what it means, that God brings his rule and reign through that. But in the New Testament, we see it's Jesus who enters into our lives, and he rescues us from slavery, 
He rescues us from the power of sin that has held us back in our lives, and He transforms us, and He saves us from our sins, and He, he redeems us. He buys us back from the kingdom of darkness, and He says, I'll put you into the kingdom of light. Amen. That's good news. This is our message. And so He, he, he does that for us, and that's how He rules and He reigns in our lives. Thirdly, this kingdom has a people and is a people. Yes, it has a people. I've spoken about skinny jeans theology where I've said, you know, the kingdom is so much more than ethical things. It's so much more than just signs and wonders. The kingdom is not just an ethic. It's not just a demonstration of power. It's not reduced to those things. It includes those things. But the kingdom above all is a people who are under a king. And in the Old Testament, the people of God are the people of Israel. And people could be added to that as, as uh, proselytes came in. But primarily they were a Jewish ethnic group. The people of God were the nation of Israel, and that's what it means in the Old Testament. And that's why I said when the Israel thought the kingdom was coming, it was good news for Israel and bad news for the Romans. But in the New Testament, we see that the word Israel is expanded to include all of God's people that live by faith. And we are grafted in, says Paul. We are grafted into the old trunk. It's not a new thing. It's the old trunk. We are grafted in. And all of God's people are now part of the new Israel, which is the church. And so in the New Testament, the people of God are governed by King Jesus. And that's why I say it's not possible to have the kingdom outside of the church. The kingdom is the people. The kingdom is the people of God. The, people is the, the, the church is the people of God who are ruled by King Jesus through faith as they walk by faith and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. So, fourth, a kingdom is ruled by laws in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there was the law of Moses. Notice, please, that when God gave the Ten Commandments, when, when uh, uh, Moses went up and he got the tablets and he wrote down the Ten Commandments and he came down to the people, they didn't get to vote, right? They didn't, oh, we like that one. No, 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 the adultery one, we don't like that. We'd prefer to be able to sleep with anyone. Don't like that one, God. Just, just take that one off, please. We'd like the one about murder. We think it's good that we shouldn't murder each other, but some of the others are about coveting. What, what, what is that all about? I mean, surely you can want your neighbor's possessions. What's wrong with that? They didn't get to vote, did they? They had to live under what God gave them, and the revelation came to them, and they lived under that because God knew that was good for them. And similarly, in the, in the, in the New Testament, do you know that Jesus gave a new law for us? The new law. And if you read Matthew chapter 5, uh, I'm going to just read a portion. It's the same language. Jesus goes up on the mountain, it says. Do you know there are no mountains in Galilee? Only rolling hills. So what's the idea? The idea is that Jesus is saying in a similar way to Moses going up Mount Sinai, I am demonstrating by going up the mountain, I'm going up, and he has a new law for you that believe in me. And this is what he said. He said this, verse 2. He opened his mouth and he taught them. And he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Come on. You don't have it all together. You know that you are poor, that you desperately need God. You are so blessed. This is the new law for you as a believer. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kind of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the new law that Jesus gives for the new people of God, his church. And he says, this is how you are to live. Not by the law of Moses. The law of Moses is completely fulfilled in me. And as you walk by the Spirit, you're automatically going to obey the law of Moses. And you're not going to do those things. And this is how you are to live. And then if you notice in the the Gospels, Jesus goes on and he says, you have heard it said, or Moses wrote, but I say to you, "This this is what you should do. He's giving a new law to us. It's called the law of love. It's called the law of grace. It's called the law of the Spirit. And we're no longer under the power of the Mosaic law. We are under the power of love, the power of the Holy Spirit, the grace of God to transform us from the inside and help us to live as people that honor Him through our lives. Amen? Do you notice again, people, the disciples didn't get to vote. Oh, Jesus, what do you mean? Blessed are those that persecute. Are you trying to say that I'm blessed if I'm persecuted? You are crazy, Jesus. Crazy. What do you mean when you say I'm going to inherit the earth if I'm meek? No, the meek people don't inherit the, 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 the earth. They get trampled on. The Donald Trumps, in it, they inherit the earth. They smash people out of the way and rule by power and fear. What are you saying, what are you saying that, that, that the meek inherit the earth? This is what the new law. Now everyone's offended with me who loves Donald Trump. Sorry, sorry about that. The kingdom of God is through the lives of people that have surrendered their lives to the rule and the reign and the law of King Jesus, and that law is love. It's the law of grace, it's the law of the gospel. That's what we mean. We talk about the kingdom has come in our lives. Lastly, in the kingdom, in the Old Testament, has a land. Do you notice that? It's a land. It has a geography. And the promise in the New Testament doesn't go away. It it expands to a new political, geopolitical reality. First in Jerusalem, said Jesus, then to Judea, and then to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And so the land in the New Testament is where any Christian takes space, any in, in a social sense or a political sense or a cultural sense and embodies the life of God through their lives, we take land. That's why Jesus says that every place you're, you tread your foot is, is yours. There's something of the kingdom comes through our lives as we live as Christians. And so there, Jesus is the new temple. Jesus is the mobile temple. We become the temple of God. We are the temple of God as his church. And it's, we take land in the world as we simply live our lives and do what he's called us to do. And we are see communities transformed and lives transformed. Amen? So my last little thing about comparing the kingdom and the local church in an unhelpful way. It is true that the kingdom is both present and future. It's inaugurated now. It is here. And it is true that the fullness of that is still to come. But it's really unhelpful to, to speak about the present church as the imperfect and the future kingdom as the perfect in a comparative way. That's completely unfair. 
And why do I say that? Because Ephesians says that. Ephesians chapter 3, it says the kingdom is already inaugurated. It's already come. It is imperfect, but it is in place. And yes, the perfect is going to come when Jesus comes back. But the church is the kingdom now with all of its imperfections and all its blemishes. And we've got to recognize that and live in that reality as we strive towards Jesus coming again and seeing all things new. Amen? And so here I see, let me read it to you, Ephesians 3 verse 7. Paul says this, I became a servant of this gospel, this message, that by the gift of God's grace given through the working of His power, although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me, this message was given to me, to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of God's grace and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which was hidden for ages past by God who created all things. And in verse 10, his intent was now, what in what has been inaugurated already, that Jesus' birth through his life and his death and his resurrection was now that through the church, the imperfect church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly realms in accordance to his eternal purposes that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, do not be discouraged. Yes? And he says, because of my sufferings, but I want to say to you, don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged about what you see right now. Yes, it's imperfect. Yes, it's messy. Yes, there's lots of stuff that happens in church. Yes, but love the local church because it's the beautiful bride that Jesus has inaugurated, that his loves, that his heart is towards. Love the church. Give yourself to his people. Church is not a country club for perfect saints. It's not a country club. The church, you want to join a country club, I can suggest some good ones for you to go. You can play golf every Sunday. Saturday, Monday to Friday. The church is not a country club for perfect people. It's a hospital for redeemed sinners that are being transformed by the grace of God, that know that they haven't got it together, that are on a journey, that are encouraging each other, linking arm to arm, saying, come on, guys, we can do this together. That's the church. Come on. So please, let's not, let's not compare the present church with the present kingdom. Sorry, wrong, wrong line. Ignore that. Delete that, please. We must, we must compare the present church with the present kingdom. Let's not compare the present church with the future perfect kingdom that is still to come. Amen? And so, in summary, in conclusion, the message of our church, the message of the local church is the beautiful message of the gospel, the grace of God. That's the message of our local church. Our message as Christians is that there is a king that has come, and there's a kingdom that has come, and God is the ruler of this king, and there's a king who rules, and his name is Jesus. Our message is that this kingdom is a people. It's all of us. It is, has a people. This, this, the people of this kingdom are God's people. The church of this kingdom are made up of people from every tribe, every people, every nation, everyone who loves him by faith that has ever loved him by faith. And the message of this kingdom is that Jesus' rule and reign has come, his rule of love, his rule of grace, not his law, any other law or tradition or institution. And lastly, this kingdom does not exist in any physical land, but in every land and every place all over the 
world where God's people live by faith, who are motivated by grace and love and the power of the Spirit, and it's demonstrated to everyone who, love, who, who will hear through those that love Jesus and every life where He reigns and rules by the power of His Spirit. That is His kingdom. His kingdom has come. And we are part. The church is His kingdom come now. And there's a future perfection that is to come. But we enjoy and love and help the beautiful bride of Christ to be transformed into the fullness of what it is going to become so that Jesus can come back. Lord, let your, come, your kingdom come in us and through us and through all of your church here on earth as it is in heaven. And everyone says, amen. amen. Come on.